Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 21. Book of Acts, chapter 21. What I would like to do here to start is I would like to read through our passage, which is Acts 21, 1 through 16, and I want to use slides to sort of help us navigate all these locations that we're probably not familiar with. So I'm going to, walk, I'm going to read through the passage slowly with slides to sort of orient us, and then we're going to work back through uh, the, the passage in pieces. If you will uh, look with me at the screen here. You will remember that Paul, uh, on his third missionary journey, had made his way all the way over to the city of Corinth, which you can see right here on the map. Uh, that's where he was, and he was going to make his return journey, and he's doing that now. Last we saw him, he was speaking to the Ephesian elders there at Miletus, that, that port city. Today's journey is the rest of this red arrow as he heads this way and eventually makes his way all the way to Jerusalem at the bottom of the screen. That's the journey for today's passage, and just to help you orient, I'm going to show you a slide now that's about to zoom in on this part of the map right there from an angle. So just if you can see, that's where we're about to go, right here. That's that same area. And let's follow along in our passage to see if we can follow with what is happening. Acts 21, verse 1. This is God's Word. And when we had parted from them, that's the elders at Miletus, right here at the top of the screen. We had parted from them. We set sail, and we came by a straight course to Kos. And you can see the island of Kos right here as they are passing by. And the next day to Rhodes, which is another island right here, which they would have gone nearby. And from there to Patara. So Patara here is a city, a port city on the side of Lycia. Verse 2, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia. So Phoenicia is at the bottom corner of the screen there. So it's a ship going all the way across a big, about 400 miles across the Mediterranean Sea there. Um, we went on board and set sail. Verse 3. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, so if you look at the screen, they're sailing here, and they come in sight of Cyprus, which would be on their left. You can see coming down, Cyprus would be on your left from the boat's position. Verse 3 again, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed in Tyre. Now, if you will look back at the screen, we're going to do a map from the other side here. You can be closer to where he's landing. There's the island of Cyprus at the top of the screen. He has made his way down, passing it on his left, and now they are here in Tyre, the major trading city and port city of Tyre, where the ship will be unloaded. Again, verse 3, one more time. When we had come inside of Cyprus, the island, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days, a week in Tyre. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So again, those are saints right there in the city of Tyre. There was a church there, and the saints there were telling Paul through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. Uh, next verse, verse 5. When our days there in Tyre were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. So you can see here, they're taking a boat right on the edge of the shore, and now they arrive at the next city, Ptolemaeus. And we greeted, middle of verse 7, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. So apparently there was a church here at Ptolemaeus as well, where they stayed for one day. 
Verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea. This is probably by boat as well. They ended up at Caesarea the next day. So again, verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip. Remember him from back in Acts 6 and 8? We entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. So, think he's coming from probably closer to Jerusalem. Agabus is coming more this direction, and he comes to Caesarea. While we were staying there, verse 10, for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we, now including Luke, amazingly, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. So if you look back at the screen, obviously you can tell the last part from Caesarea up to Jerusalem. Now they're finally there where Paul has been wanting to go for quite some time now. Again, verse 15, after these days we got ready, went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of one Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. I hope you're able to follow that. Now, I would like to really begin the formal sermon at this point. So, the sermon is titled, How Biblical Convictions Create Courage and Evangelism. How Biblical Convictions Create Courage and Evangelism. And I've got four points, and it is, two, it is 346. So, everything, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna do it. We're going to make it. It's going to be good. Point number one. And I will go ahead and tell you, I am borrowing this point strongly from a John MacArthur sermon on this text that was extremely helpful to me. Point number one, Paul's courageous convictions. Point number two, Philip's zealous evangelism. Point number three, Agabus's accurate prophecy. And for, point number four, Paul's Christ-like example. So again, point number one, Paul's courageous convictions. I want you to turn with me to Romans, which is going to be the very next book in your Bible, and hold your spot in Acts. Go to Romans chapter 15. Romans chapter 15. Toward the latter part of that chapter, we'll start in verse 24. While you are turning there, I want to show you another map. On the screen, this is kind of a map of the Roman Empire in the first century. The orange part is what Rome controlled at the time. And just so you can sort of reference, you know, where we've been in Acts so far, Paul's first missionary journey took place in this area, that box. His second and third missionary journeys were contained in this box. Now, do you see how much more of the Roman Empire there is for Paul to get to? So, when Paul is writing the book of Romans, we talked about this recently, Paul was in the city of Corinth, which is located right where this blue dot is on the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Can you see that? I'll try a, maybe a red dot or something right there. That's where Corinth is. Paul sends the letter uh, from Corinth 
perhaps with a woman named Phoebe, he sends the letter uh, mentioned in Romans 16. He sends the letter uh, with her, and she would have probably gone by boat all the way to the city of Rome with the, with the letter to the Romans. And at the same time, Paul decides to head back to Jerusalem, which he's doing in today's passage. So, simultaneously, while Paul is heading in the blue line back to Jerusalem, the letter to the Romans is heading in the red line to the Romans. Does that make sense? These are happening at the same time, going in different directions. And the reason I'm showing this to you is because I want you to see where Spain is in the context of what Paul is doing here, okay? So, let's look at Romans 15, written around the same exact time as our text just a few months earlier. Paul says this to the Roman Christians in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to where? Spain. Now, does that make sense? You, you want to go to Rome to get some help and encouragement, and then they can send you, because they're closer, they can send you on his way to Spain to spend years planting churches there. We're actually not sure if he ever did this. Again, verse 24, I hope to see you, Romans, in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however… I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia, those churches would include Macedonia, Philippi, remember, Thessalonica and Berea, and Achaia would include the Corinthian church. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem, for they were pleased to do it. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their, that is the Jews, spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Pause there. Do you see Paul's zeal to maintain the unity between the largely Jewish church in Jerusalem and the largely Gentile churches in the rest of the Roman Empire? It would be so easy for ethnic prejudice to spring up between these two groups. But Paul says, I will do what, I will risk my life to make sure unity is maintained across these churches. So, Paul says, I want the largely Gentile churches to give money to the poor, largely Jewish church in Jerusalem to keep that unity between those two groups. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you, Romans. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, listen to this, to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, why? That I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. You see, as Paul is traveling the blue arrow on the screen, he sends this letter in the red arrow, and he says, listen, when you get this letter, no, I'm on my way to Jerusalem with a lot of money from Gentile Christians to give it to the Jewish Christians. Pray for me that I not be put to death by unbelievers in Judea. That's what he means. And it comes really close in this week and next week's text, he comes within about a hair of being killed by unbelievers in Judea. But he prays, and the Lord does spare him, and he ends up making his way to Rome later in chains, not as a free man. Okay, that's the context. Let's head back to our Acts passage, Acts 21. So, 
So number one, Paul's courageous convictions. You can see them already in that Romans letter. He wants to give money to help the needy saints in Jerusalem and to maintain the unity. And this conviction in him for the unity and the care for those saints makes him incredibly courageous, unstoppably courageous. Even his Christian friends are saying, you're out of your mind, Paul. You're, this is a destinance. Don't go. And Paul says, I've got to. He's driven by his deep convictions of what this would mean for the good of the church. And MacArthur gave these four subpoints here that I thought were helpful about convictions. You, you, you do understand. If we as Christians do not have convictions, like profound beliefs that we have about God's Word that run so deep they actually control what we do. To, to where if threats come or the threat of suffering comes or awkwardness is a possibility or difficulty, we say, I must be true to what God says. Not to bring up a, a, an issue that can too easily be politicized, but James Coates is a pastor from Canada, and he, with his elder board, uh, was, they were asked in, in this area of Canada to not have any church services for an indefinite period of time, and in his own conscience, as their elders met, they said, we believe that we must obey Jesus to continue having church, even though it is right now against the law. And James Coates and their church opened the church back up, and he went to jail for about a month. And I was following this story as it went. In fact, my wife and I and a few of us were at a conference in Atlanta where he was speaking, and we were in the bookstore. Kelly and I were talking, and James Coates and his wife Erin just walked right past us. I was like, that's that guy. Saw him on national TV the other day. <laughs> he just walked right by us. So th the point here being, where does a guy like James Coates come from? Uh, the answer is, that's a man who has convictions. He has convictions, and so he's willing to face possible serious suffering uh, in, in the face of his biblical convictions. So how do we become people of conviction? And MacArthur gives four points. Number one, know your purpose. Know your purpose. Um, and it just, just reminds me of Paul's words in the previous chapter. If you'll turn to Luke 20, I mean, excuse me, Acts 20, verse 22. Know your purpose. Listen again as Paul speaks. Acts 20, 22. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, Paul, why do you do it? 24 but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. So I want to ask you, do we as Christians have deep convictions that actually control the decisions that we make? Do we, do we hold to the Bible so deeply that we are actually willing to make decisions that might cost us? Because we believe that God's truth is right and, and eternal and what must be, what must be followed for our good and for God's glory. So number one, we must know our purpose. Number two, we must not be diverted from these purposes. And you'll, you'll look with me here in today's passage. Look at verse four. Verse four, it says, "...and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there," this is entire, "...for seven days, and through the Spirit they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem." And then look, you see, they're telling Paul, don't do this. Look also at verse 12. When we heard this, we, we and the people urged him not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul says, I love you, but I have to. I've got to. He, he would not be diverted. Number three, Paul was willing to pay any price. Look again at 21.13. 
Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul was willing to pay the cost of following the Lord. And number four, aim to affect others. Aim to affect others with your courage for the Lord. Look at uh, verses four through six. This, this really hit me this week. So they say, don't go. Verse five, when our days there entire were ended, we departed and went on our journey. But li- listen, and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. Now, do you see this? At first, they say, Paul, you should think twice about this. Don't, I don't know if you should go. And Paul says, I, I, I must go. And so what do they do? They, they relent of their words, and they submit to Paul's idea here. And that what do they do? They take their families. It just, it just struck me reading this. They all, with their wives and children, went all the way to the beach where the boat was, and they listened to Paul, and they prayed, and he said goodbye. Can you imagine being one of those kids? Imagine being an eight-year-old boy a seven-year-old girl, a 14-year-old son, maybe a five-year-old daughter. Imagine this. Your parents take you to the beach, and there's this man. And your parents know he could very likely die if he goes to this city because of his love of Jesus. And you're four, you're eight, you're ten. You would never have forgotten this for the rest of your life. There's a man looking at you with love and compassion in his eyes going, I know that this could cost me my life. And I know I'm going to be put in prison or bound or beaten. I I know it's almost certain. The Spirit keeps telling me I'm going to be in prison. But I must do this to the glory of Jesus. I must fight for the unity and the well-being of these churches. I must do this. And imagine looking at this man, go get on the boat. As an eight-year-old, how would that not stay with you? How would that not be a permanent impression in your heart and mind for months, years, decades to come in your life? Because you would know, no doubt, if that were happening, that the Lord had deeply impacted Paul's life. You would know that. And so they say farewell, and they send him on, on board. And, and look also at verses 14 through 16. This is, this is Paul affecting others. So at first they say, don't go, but then look what ends up happening. They, they kind of change their mind. Verse 14, and since he would not be persuaded, we, including Luke, ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us. That's amazing, because the disciples in Caesarea said, nobody should be going, don't go to Jerusalem, whatever you do. And Paul was so persuasive, some of them went with him to Jerusalem. That's amazing. And so, Paul was aiming to affect others with his courage and conviction. There there is something to be said for a person who gives their life to something, who believes it with all their heart. You know, even if… don't misunderstand me. Even if someone is wrong about what they give their life to, so often people will admire that person. I don't think we should admire people for doing what's wrong. But biblically, we have what is right and true. Should it not control our life? Should it not drive our life? And if it does, I'm telling you, people will stream towards men and women who have a backbone of steel, biblically. You need to be kind on the outside, but you need to have a spinal column of of steel. What one pastor calls, don't be an evangelifish with no spiritual vertebrae. Be someone with a spinal column of steel. You know, the jellyfish, I saw someone in the ocean a couple weeks ago, this little jellyfish just kind of floating around. They got nothing. They got no, no, no mind, no heart, no lungs. I don't even know, how they, I don't even know what they are exactly. Here <laughs> they are floating in the water. And I, I got one of the little net. My son and I were trying to catch some stuff, and I caught almost nothing. But I caught a jellyfish, which was not hard because they're just like 
sitting there. So I, I got my net. I got the jellyfish out of the water, and as soon as it came up out of the water in Panama City Beach, the jellyfish just smushed itself right into the netting of the thing, and it had no shape anymore. It just took on the shape of whatever it was in. Don't be like that. Don't be an evangelifish. Don't be just a Christian who has a few Bible verses and some Jesus, but you basically talk like the world. You basically love what the world loves, desire what the world desires, live like the world lives. You're basically just a middle-class American with no external differences, which reminds us even of some of these testimonies. My own testimony is just like this. No, we need to have a spinal column that makes people say, like 1 Peter 3 says, remember this? In your heart, always set apart Christ as Lord, telling me what to do, right? Always in your heart, set apart Christ as Lord and be ready to give a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. But do it with gentleness and respect. See, it, it's, it's kindness uh, as, the, as the outside with the backbone of steel on the inside. Kind on the outside, absolute convictions on the inside that, that drive our life. And in the end, will that affect other people? Yet the people in Caesarea said, don't go to Jerusalem. Now they're packing their bags. They're going with Paul to Jerusalem. Paul has been persuasive to these individuals. Okay, point number two, Philip's zealous evangelism. Look with me at verse 8. On the next day, we, including Luke, departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now, turn with me to Acts chapter 6 real quick on Philip. Acts chapter 6. You remember how Luke says that he researched all of Luke and Acts carefully, talking to eyewitnesses and all these different things? He mentions that in the first four verses of Luke's gospel. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that we might have certainty concerning the things about which we have been taught. So Paul did a careful investigation, and I have no question in my mind that he interviewed Philip because he was in his house for at least a week. You think that Luke was probably salivating at this point, like as a journalist, right, as an inspired journalist. So Philip, you were one of the seven. You were there for Acts 6, 7, and 8. You saw Stephen's martyrdom. You actually were on a team of seven with Stephen the martyr. You, 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 you were there for the Ethiopian eunuch's conversion. You actually led the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ in Acts 8, which hadn't been written yet. So I have no doubt. His, Luke's primary eyewitnesses for, Luke, for Acts 6, 7, and 8 is Philip. He's in his house for a week. Why would he not talk about those events? And so I have no doubt Luke, Acts 6, 7, and 8 is largely coming from Philip and probably Paul too because Paul was, you know, there killing Stephen slightly different life at the time. But just real quick, look at, Steve, look at Philip, getting all my words confused. Look at Philip, verse 3, therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom to whom we will appoint to this duty. And verse, uh, you see in verse 5, Philip is mentioned right after Stephen. Now turn with me to Acts 8, get a picture of Philip's boldness. Verse 4, this is the persecution broke out from Saul, Paul, of all people, when he was not a Christian, so they had to scatter. Look at verse 4, now, this is Acts 8, 4, now when they were scattered, they went about preaching the Word. This is zealous evangelism. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. Uh, For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed, so there was much joy in that city. Skip to verse 26. 
Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south toward the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. I just got to read this part. This is so good. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? He said, how can I unless someone guides me? And then they walked through Isaiah 53, that Jesus was the suffering servant for our sins. And look at verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And then look at verse 40. So after the Ethiopian eunuch is converted, he's baptized, verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through the, and preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Where do we find him in Acts 21? Still in Caesarea. Apparently, his itinerant ministry had come to an end. He got married if he wasn't already. He's now had at least four daughters, and maybe he has sons, and now he's living full-time in Caesarea ministering to the church there. But what you see is Philip was a zealous evangelism evangelist. You know where this comes from? Deep convictions about the truth of who Jesus was. That's why he went city to city preaching and proclaiming the good news. Let's move to point number three, Agabus's accurate prophecy. Agabus's accurate prophecy. Agabus has been mentioned once already in Acts predicting a famine that came. Look with me at verse 10 of Acts 21. While we were staying for many days, this is in Caesarea, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, the, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem." Suffice it to say, I could talk until we all became Eutychuses and fell asleep on Agabus, but I will try to just give you the brief version of Agabus here, why I believe he's a genuine prophet who is speaking the truth. Number one, you don't have to write all these down, it would be very hard. Number one, Agabus is clearly presented as a genuine prophet in this passage. Just clearly, it's just, I don't know anyone who disagrees with that. And we've argued in the last two weeks in Sunday school that if you're a genuine prophet in the New Testament, you speak infallible words just like Old Testament prophets. If you want to know more about that, we have an hour and a half online about that for the last two Sunday schools for more detail on that. Number two, Agabus is a true prophet because he accurately predicted a famine in chapter 11, verse 28, that did come on the land during Emperor Claudius's reign. In fact, he was so reliable that Paul and others made decisions about famine relief based on the prophecy before the famine even showed up. They were counting on it coming true because they knew he was a genuine prophet. Number three, he acts out his prophecy. Now, can we admit this is a weird story? He comes up to, you know, Paul would probably have like a rope belt around, you know, what, what they would wear at the time, like a rope belt around his waist, it may have held money and things. Agabus comes up and goes, Paul, can I have your belt? Paul's going, uh, excuse me? This prophet takes off Paul's belt, gets on the ground, puts his hands and feet together, and somehow ties the belt around his hands and feet. And he's like, and everyone's looking at him like, Agabus, you okay, man? And Agabus goes, okay, Paul, when you get to Jerusalem, this is how you're going to be bound, hand and foot. Why does that make us think he's a real prophet? Isaiah. Ezekiel and Jeremiah all did this kind of stuff. Can I just remind you of these fun stories? Isaiah 20, the Lord says, uh, Isaiah, 
when the people go into exile, they're going to be naked, unable to dress themselves. So why don't you go around naked for three years and show people what exile will be like? All of us who wanted to be Isaiah growing up just changed our mind, okay, on that one. Three years? Isaiah 20, go read it for, for yourself. Jeremiah 32, when the city of Jerusalem is about to be taken and everyone killed or exiled, God says, I want you to go buy a plot of land. Jeremiah's like, this isn't really a good marketing time. This is not really the moment you want to go buy property. We're about to be destroyed by the Babylonians. And why? He actually does. He gets someone to witness it and they sign it. He actually buys property. Why? Because God says, I'm telling people a parable of what the future is going to be for Israel. We're coming back to this land one day and whatnot. How about Ezekiel chapter 4? You remember this one. God says, take a brick. It will represent the city of Jerusalem. And then lie on one side for 300 plus days, representing however many, de- how many years of exile. And then when you're done, lie on the other side and tie yourself with ropes, and then put siege works against the brick, showing how the city will be destroyed. And then you lay there for however many days, showing however many years this will, ha- will last. And then cook food over manure, because that's what's going to happen when they, are, when they are sieged and they have no food supply. This is very strange. Prophets who are genuine in the Old Testament act out parables to demonstrate their message. What is Agabus doing? He's acting just like Ezekiel, just like Jeremiah, just like Isaiah. He's just like them. It's not a lesser kind of prophecy. Number four, he is not presented as speaking fallibly with errors. Rather, get, look at this is to me un, unmistakable. Look at verse 11. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, In Greek, tole lege, the Holy Spirit. Thus says the Holy Spirit. The same exact words in the Greek Old Testament that the prophets say when they say, thus says, tole lege, the Lord. He is not speaking as a fallible prophet. He says, these are the words of the Holy Spirit of God. I am making no errors in what I say. I don't know how much stronger of a point I can make than that one. Number five, um, Paul is bound and he's given to the Romans, as Agabus predicted, and perhaps most importantly, Paul later in Acts in the last chapter uses the very Greek words Agabus uses to describe what happened to him when he was bound and handed over. Look at, you can look later at Acts 28, verse 17. Paul uses two words that are this, virtually the same from what Agabus says, confirming Agabus' prophecy as being true. But we could talk a lot more about Agabus We will move on now to the last point of the day. In fact, before before I read that, let me just real quickly read this passage to go with us from 2 Peter chapter 1. It's a great text on the authority of a prophet. 2 Peter 1 says this, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, listen, no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The question is is whether you are a true or false prophet. All right, number four, Paul's Christ-like example. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8, and we will close with this. Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. In Luke's gospel, we're told in chapter 9, verse 51, that Jesus set His face to go to Jerusalem. Does that sound like Paul? 
They both take a long trip to Jerusalem that costs them either their life in Jesus' case or almost their life in Paul's case. Luke is showing that Paul is following almost literally in the footsteps of his Savior, heading towards a fate in Jerusalem that could lead to death. Look at Mark 8, verse 29. And he asked them, Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." Similar to Paul's situation, isn't it? I'm going to Jerusalem where I could die. Don't do it, Paul. Jesus goes, I'm going to Jerusalem where I will die. Peter says, don't do it, Lord. I've got something better for you. And Jesus says, living longer is not better for me. Get behind me, Satan. That's satanic. I must go to the cross. And so Jesus insists on it. So tying all this together, we believe that God's divine and infallible Word, including the New and Old Testament prophets and the apostles, all that we need to know and all of God's infallible words are contained in this book for what is necessary for salvation and life and godliness. And we know that if we get our convictions from this reliable Word, not from man's interpretation, but straight from God's own mouth, as it were, we know that our life will be based on a rock. And if our life is based on a rock, we know that our courage will flow from this and our evangelism will flow from this because we know that we're living consistently with what is true. And most importantly, it is because Jesus sacrificed Himself on the cross for our sins and made atonement for sinners like me and you, that we can be right with God and our life now can begin in a small-scale way to show something of the fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we again are thankful for hearing about these testimonies that we just got to witness and these baptisms. God, thank You for these new members. Thank You for their family and friends. Lord, I pray that You would be at work in all of our lives, help our roots to be down deep in the rock, that we would have deep convictions that lead to boldness and courage, that lead to telling others in evangelism that lead to acts of generosity like Paul caring for the saints in Jerusalem. Help us to seek the unity of the church like Paul did, even at the risk of his life. God, help us to be more Christ-like, willing to suffer when necessary, not seeking out suffering for its own sake. That would not be right. But, but when necessary, being willing to embrace it as a small picture of what Christ has done, suffering so much for we who deserve to suffer that way as well. Thank you for your, the salvation. I pray you'd be with us now as we sing. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.